most historical events of significance have a title. Whether it's a major battle to turn the tide of a war, a significant piece of legislation that had either a positive or negative repercussion on a large scale, or a moment in time that had such an impact that it couldn't help but draw the gaze of history. People are namers. We can't help it. Assigning labels to things is just what we do. It helps us with categorization, memorization, the packaging of the concrete into little packages made of words, the Battle of Yorktown, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Great Depression, just to name a few examples. But some events in history have been so shocking, violent, unexpected, and sudden that we can't help but have just the date that they occurred indelibly etched onto our brains, and as a result, on how we name them by just that, the date. And when it comes to this phenomenon, at least thinking in terms of American history, I struggle to think of a more perfect example than 9-11. I'm sure the first place most of our minds go when we hear that date is the World Trade Center, then perhaps the Pentagon, and never to be forgotten, of course, the passengers aboard Flight 93 who courageously fought back against their hijackers and wound up crashing their plane into Pennsylvania Field, killing all aboard but preventing the plane from flying most likely into the U.S. Capitol. The coordinated hijacking of four commercial planes by al-Qaeda extremists under the leadership of Osama bin Laden and the nearly 3,000 deaths that occurred in a matter of hours as a result shook not only New Yorkers, but Americans to their very foundations. For a little while, at least, there was a sense of unity and patriotism in America. The George W. Bush administration launched what they referred to as a global war on terror, and on October 7, 2001, Bush announced that the United States had begun military operations in Afghanistan. Americans were scared, hurt, angry. Admittedly, myself, as a second grader, I was too young to truly understand the size and scope of what was taking place in my country, obviously, but I remember being behind Bush and viewing the conflict through the narrow prism of getting the bad guys responsible for this. And hell, I'm sure a lot of us have similar stories to this. One of my best buddy's fathers narrowly escaped one of the towers before it went down, so this was personal. Unfortunately, however, as we are reckoning with the hindsight now, in the not-too-distant wake of Biden's decision to withdraw troops from Afghanistan all these years later, there were many negative byproducts of the decisions made by the Bush administration in the immediate aftermath of 9 11. opened the door to severe, unconstitutional invasions of privacy against U.S. citizens by their government, and as far as this segment is concerned, normalized Islamophobia in the United States. Kevin and I were actually friends with uh, some Syrian immigrants who were direct recipients of the fear turned hate in the wake of 9 11, and on a much grander scale, a U.S. naval base in Cuba named Guantanamo Bay became a detention center and personal hell for suspected terrorists who were detained there, often without real evidence and legal counsel, and often without explanation as to why they were even there in the first place. So you might be asking yourself, and I understand if you are, where is all this going? And as I arrive at the end of page two and onto page three of my script, you might be asking, how does this pertain to Ron DeSantis? Well, let me tell you. So in early 2006, a young Navy JAG, which if you didn't know, JAG stands for Judge Advocate General's Corps. So a young Navy JAG officer named Ron DeSantis arrived at Guantanamo Bay. And while DeSantis prides himself on his service to his country, there are certain, let's say, less sexy elements of his military service that we're going to get into in this episode. So allow me to welcome you to another episode of Florida Man, Ron DeSantis.
Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Okay, so welcome to the show. We have a great program for you today. We're going to open with part three in our biographical sketch of almost President Ron DeSantis. Following that, Kevin's going to jump in and update us on who's declared for the 2024 race and what the current nominees have been up to to stir the pot in the meantime. This is a section that we like to call the state of the field. And then following that, Kevin and I will be joined with Brian Escal from the podcast Searching for Political Identity with Brian Escal to discuss recent headlines that pertain to Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign, the GOP, and the 2024 presidential election. So let's get back into it. So like I said before our theme music brought us in, in 2006, Navy JAG officer Ron DeSantis arrived at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. By the time he arrived, Guantanamo Bay, the detention center for suspected terrorists, had been open for four years and had already undergone quite a lot of turmoil. According to The Guardian, quote, At the time DeSantis was assigned to Guantanamo, there were four or five staff judge advocates always present at the camp. It was a time of frantic activity at the prison, amid mounting legal challenges filed on behalf of detainees and widespread hunger strikes the year before. End quote. A man who really captures this turmoil, and often found himself at the center of it, is a detainee named Mansour Adaifi, or in other names he goes by Detainee 441, and also the nickname that he was given, which is Smiley Troublemaker. And Adaifi was in his early 20s when DeSantis arrived. A little background on Adaifi, he had been wrongly detained at Guantanamo Bay since 2002, and I do just want to direct you to his memoir, Don't Forget Us Here, where he just describes in magnificent and heart-wrenching prose the daily life of a Guantanamo detainee who never submits to his captivity and actively protests and seeks to draw global attention to his and his fellow detainees' plight at the hands of the U.S. government. And given the fact that Adaifi was detained at Guantanamo from 2002 to 2016, I can't help but admire his willpower and stamina alone to keep resisting he somehow managed to sustain through all those years, despite all that they put him through. And one of the big ways that detainees would protest their treatment and attempt to strong arm, sometimes with mild successes, uh, the U.S. military into negotiating for better treatment was by going on hunger strike. And returning to Adaifi's memoir, Don't Forget Us Here, one of its strengths is that there are passages where Adaifi will switch from first person to second person, and it kind of makes you feel like as the reader that he's inviting you to experience firsthand the cruel life of Guantanamo as he experienced it. And there's this really striking example that I want to share with you that pertains to hunger strikes. It reads like this, quote, going on hunger strike is like entering a dark tunnel where the light at the end is death. You don't know how many days or weeks or months or even years you will be in that dark tunnel, but you know you will claw your way toward that light, always getting closer. 
There is no peace in this darkness, only restlessness. You travel with death every inch and every second. In the beginning is the pain we all feel in our stomachs when we are hungry. Your stomach growls and yells, begging for food. Then your stomach shuts down as your body begins to consume itself, starting with fat. Days pass, and now you don't sleep well. You're agitated and restless, and you have to stand up and walk or do something to keep your mind busy. You begin to have vision problems. You lose your ability to concentrate or focus. You feel confused. More days pass, and it becomes hard to breathe, and your heart beats fast with the slightest movement. Your muscles shrink. Your cheeks hollow. Your mouth dries and smells nasty and tastes worse. You have no energy. You have no muscles. Your head aches all the time. After four weeks, hallucinations begin. You hear strange voices. You are just skin covering bones. Your hair falls out. Your joints ache and feel loose in their sockets. Please understand, none of us wanted to die, but we understood that by going on hunger strike, we were choosing to set off on a slow and painful journey to death. At some point, we looked at our options and knew we had no other choice. We could do nothing and die forgotten in this terrible place, or we could die trying to bring attention to our indefinite detention. I wouldn't wish this journey on anyone. Please, don't go down that tunnel. You won't be the same person when you come out. End quote. While hunger strikes were a tactic that had some minor successes for the detainees and was something the military jailers had to keep tabs on, it was almost precisely when Ron DeSantis arrived at Guantanamo that the rules of engagement regarding how hunger strikes were handled changed. It was while Ron DeSantis was stationed at Guantanamo that the military broke hunger strikes as a tool for protest over their need for good, and it wasn't pretty how they did it. In January 2006, again, the same year that DeSantis arrived at Guantanamo Bay, camp administration received the green light from Congress to begin force-feeding detainees who were participating in the hunger strikes. Seeing how hunger strikes had become a consistent tactic among the detainees, and they had the ability to spread from camp to camp, this was the all-clear that the military was looking for to crush one of the few tools detainees had left to protest. As you can probably imagine, the force-feeding process was brutal. It was often done with little care for the detainees' dignity or even physical safety, and some detainees were left with physical injuries from careless guards, and as more light is being shed on Guantanamo Bay and what happened there, the more we're learning about U.S. government-sanctioned torture like this. For example, during your typical force-feeding session, detainees were strapped to a chair, and a tube was thrust up their nose and down their throat and then a nutritional drink called Ensure was poured through the tubes, down their throats, and into their stomachs. And during this process, detainees often bled through their noses, vomited, and even soiled themselves. As far as those injuries that I alluded to, many suffered severe throat injuries from having the tubes roughly yanked out of their throats once the force feeding was over, and their throats would just really suffer from the trauma of that force. And many detainees also report being left to sit in their own urine and feces for hours after the force feeding was over. This force feeding was something that they'd have to endure at least twice a day and could sometimes take hours before the guards were confident the detainee was sufficiently fed. Suffice it to say, it was a painful, degrading, demoralizing form of torture Mansour Adifi and many other detainees went through countless times. 
and it took away what little bargaining power they had from hunger striking. Now let's fast forward a bit. In 2016, after 14 years in prison at Guantanamo Bay, Mansour Adaifi was released and now lives in Serbia. And while online, Adaifi came across a picture of someone making a big splash in Republican politics in America, the current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. And as he was looking at this picture, he realized, hey, I recognize this guy. And it was the same thing for another former detainee, Ahmed Abdelaziz, who had a similar experience of recognizing DeSantis' face on television post-imprisonment. And given the horrific nature of Adaifi and Aziz's relationship with the U.S. government, this recognition did not bode well for the now 2024 presidential candidate, although at the time he was just governor of Florida. DeSantis, according to Adaifi, bore witness to one of his force feedings, and Aziz also claims that DeSantis bore witness to many more force feedings. Standing behind a chain-link fence, as Adaifi tells it, quote, He was watching, and I was really screaming crying. I was bleeding and throwing up. We were in the block yard, so they were close to the fence. And DeSantis has since responded to Adaifi's accusations, saying, quote, that's BS. Do you honestly believe that's credible? So this is 2006. I'm a junior officer. Do you honestly think that they would have remembered me from Adam? Of course not. They're just trying to get into the news because they know people like you will consume it because it fits your preordained narrative. End quote. And speaking of his role as a JAG officer, DeSantis said, quote, Everything at that time was legal in nature one way or another. So the commander wants to know, how do I combat this? So one of the jobs of a legal advisor, i.e. DeSantis, would be like, hey, you actually can't force feed. Here's what you can do. And as this story has surfaced through the accusations against him and the heat's been turned up a little bit, DeSantis hasn't exactly walked back his role so much as kind of downplayed it, appealing to how low his rank was and the fact that that would hold little sway over any major decisions taking place. Although it is worth mentioning that there were people who were not even officers who objected to certain things that were being asked of them by authority in Guantanamo. But anyway, so DeSantis said, quote, I was a junior officer. I didn't have authority to authorize anything. There may have been a commander that would have done feeding if someone was going to die, but that was not something that I would have even had authority to do, end quote. And returning to the Guantanamo detainee Ahmed Abdel Aziz, in a Guardian piece, he does not mince words when it comes to DeSantis and Guantanamo. He holds on to the belief that regardless of where DeSantis sat on the military hierarchy, he should have spoken out. And Aziz says DeSantis especially should have spoken out given the fact that he was a JAG officer and it was his job to provide legal counsel. While it's tough to play devil's advocate here, but while Aziz may be overinflating just how much power a 27-year-old naval officer low on the totem pole had to enact change, especially considering all the forces at work in Guantanamo against any type of change, Aziz concluded at the very least that he could have objected, as a number of people deployed to Guantanamo did when asked to do or witness deplorable things. DeSantis barely mentions Guantanamo Bay in his book, The Courage to be Free, but what mention he does make of it is pretty revelatory about what his stance about it is. He writes, quote, From listening to corporate media outlets at the time, one would have thought that the U.S. detainee system, whether in Iraq or at the detention facility in Guantanamo Bay, 
resembled a Soviet gulag. In reality, detainees much preferred to be in U.S. custody than in the custody of Iraqi authorities in places like Fallujah. They would frequently claim abuse when in American custody as a tactic, technique, and procedure. End quote. And as we speak, groups like the ACLU, former lawyers who represented detainees, humanitarians all over the world, those men who were detained themselves, and even just regular people like you and me, continue to sift through the clear evidence that a whole host of government-approved torture, or advanced interrogation techniques, as it's often deceitfully phrased, were practiced with regularity at Guantanamo Bay. And it's hard not to think about DeSantis's view that the claims of abuse that echoed through the prison cells and interrogation chambers throughout Guantanamo were just a tactic, without wondering to yourself, what tactic, technique, or procedure will DeSantis use to make Americans forget that a man who claims to have the courage to be free, as the title of his book suggests, didn't have the courage to bring attention to human rights abuses taking place right before his eyes? And so we'll close out our DeSantis sketch for this episode there. Now I'm going to bring you over to Kevin, who's got the state of the field. Okay, so you know what time it is now. It's time for your Almost Presence update on the state of the field. Before we talk about Ron DeSantis and we bring on our guest, we're just going to be talking through some of the updates to the state of the field so far in this presidential race. And obviously, we've had quite a bit of movement here, so we're just going to try to make sure we cover everything. Most of the movement has been on the Republican side, so we're going to spend the majority of our time covering that. And we're not really going to do a ton of coverage of the Democratic side since there just isn't a lot going on there. All right, so let's jump into it. First, we're going to talk about some new Republicans that have jumped into the race. Starting out, it has finally happened. The purpose of this podcast has finally been realized. Ron DeSantis himself has jumped into the race. I'm not going to go too deep here because obviously we're going to be talking a ton about this later, but the Florida man-in-chief himself, Meatball Ron DeSantis, has officially thrown his hat into the ring. DeSantis officially declared his presidential campaign in a Twitter space hosted by Elon Musk and David Sachs. The tech billionaire's space was ironically plagued by technical difficulties due to the large size of viewers in the space, and the announcement wound up being delayed by a whopping 24 minutes which if you've ever had to delay a live event for any period of time, that is an eternity. The space was plagued by glitches, and it cut out entirely several times. And by the time they managed to get it going, the 200,000 listeners that had initially tuned in had dwindled significantly. Now, as far as the content goes, DeSantis stuck to his typical script, with a little bit of added classical conservative talking points thrown in. He emphasized wokeness as a threat to American freedom. He discussed crime as a destructive force in American cities. He emphasized immigration and blamed it for ongoing drug problems plaguing America. And he called Biden weak and accused him of taking his cues from the woke mob. Now, many of his statements were even ripped directly out of his November re-election speech back in 2022. And of course, we've got plenty more to say about this. We've got plenty more to say about DeSantis, but we're going to save that for later since that's basically all we talk about on this podcast anyway. Now, moving on to another big name that has just jumped in the race. We're going to talk about Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Tim Scott declared his candidacy officially on May 22nd, something he had been teasing for a long time. We talked about this on our last episode. He had been opening up an exploratory committee on that, but now he has officially jumped in. Scott has made few statements of policy so far in his campaign, 
but he's been in Congress for over a decade, and so we can speculate on what kind of president he might be if elected. First, Scott has been seen as someone who can work across the aisle. One of his major legislative goals was to get something done on police reform, a traditionally democratic issue, which led to his bill known as the Justice Act, which among other things would have expanded the use of body cameras, provided for de-escalation trainings in police forces, created a federal crime for lynching, and withheld funding from departments that continued to use chokeholds. The bill failed to receive widespread Democratic support because it was seen as too weak, and it failed with 55 of the required 60 votes to pass. Scott has heavily emphasized his evangelical faith, and this will likely play a key role in his campaign and his administration if he were to have one. He has said that as president, he would sign, quote, the most conservative pro-life legislation that they can get through Congress, unquote. And while he didn't specify what the bill would be, he has said that it could include a federal ban on abortion after six weeks, which is quite a bit more extreme than what a lot of the other Republican candidates are advocating for. Republican pollster Frank Luntz, who I think represents pretty well the view of the Republican donor class, said that Scott was the exact opposite of Trump. Luntz saw Scott as having a positive vision for America, full of hope and optimism, where Trump's rhetoric is nearly apocalyptic. And as such, he has gotten a lot of support from donors. A pro-Scott PAC has $22 million in cash on hand at the moment. And Scott has the backing of conservative tech billionaire Larry Ellison, who has funded conservative campaigns in the past. But it's not clear that Scott himself shares this view. Scott has said that he's thankful Trump was elected, and when asked how his policies would differ from Trump's if elected, he said probably not very much at all. So it's not clear that that actual juxtaposition exists. Okay, so I almost missed this one, and apparently I'm not alone, because an NPR tracker of who's in the race for Republicans didn't even show this last guy on it. So even NPR isn't paying attention to the guy who had the California governor's race ruthlessly stolen from him by the deep state, and that is, of course, Larry Elder. And he actually announced his campaign on 420, so if you happen to hear about this, I am here to confirm that this was not a marijuana-induced mass delusion. Elder does appear to be actually running seriously. In Elder's announcement, he talked about all of the members of his family who have served in the military, and he went on to say that he regrets not having served himself, and his running for president is his way of serving the country. So you can thank him later, I guess. Again, few policy positions have been given by Elder, but fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, Elder has graced us with several books outlining his views. In his book, 10 Things You Can't Say in America, Elder gives a 10-point plan to transform America, and here's the plan. Abolishing the IRS, passing a national sales tax, reducing government by 80%, ending welfare and entitlements, including Social Security, Medicare, and farm and tobacco subsidies, legalizing drugs, abolishing the minimum wage, and eliminating corporate taxes. Now, if you're good at math, you'll notice that's not 10 points. I didn't list all 10 of them, but I don't hate myself enough to actually read the book. And those are all of the ones that I was able to find online. So that's you know all we're going to get for now. Anyhow, I think that gives you a pretty good picture of the kind of president Elder would be if elected, although we can't really say for sure if he still holds to all of those points. Now, another announcement that we missed, and I hope that you guys won't blame us on this one, but that is Perry Johnson. And for those of you who don't know who Perry Johnson is, which I'm going to assume is all of you, Johnson was a businessman who worked on quality standards. Johnson ran for governor of Michigan in 2022, but he failed to get the 15,000 signatures needed to get his name on the ballot. Now, why you would run for president when you can't even find 15,000 people who like you in a single state is something that I will never understand, but I guess that's probably why I'm not running for president. So anyway, Johnson's main concern appears to be the deficit. On the issues page of his website, the first tab is something he calls the two cents plan. And the plan is this. 
cut two cents from every dollar of discretionary spending. Simple. Other important policy concerns for Perry Johnson are simplifying the tax code, cutting waste in the military, and protecting Social Security and Medicare. Now, how he plans to reduce the deficit while categorically protecting two of the largest government spending programs is a mystery to me personally, but in his defense, he is not alone in that view. And lastly, in an Iowa event recently, Johnson laid out a plan to eliminate the FBI, so that's also a policy concern for him. Okay, and next on our list is a guy who kind of came out of nowhere, and actually, he's the governor of North Dakota, so he literally came out of nowhere, and that is Doug Burgum. Bergen was an angel investor in a software company that he wound up selling to Microsoft for a huge amount of money, and as a result, the dude has a little bit of money in his pocket. And he has pumped a ton of that money into his campaign, where he's outspending every other Republican in the race by pretty large margins. Bergen's campaign website lists his policies, and I hate to be like this, but it really needs to be said, for the kind of money that Doug Bergen is spending here, and for the fact that he got his money by selling a software company, his campaign website is really a bit of a shit show. It's ugly and it's very hard to navigate. So if you're listening, Doug, it is time to fire whoever you put in charge of that thing because it's just not good. And you know, you can thank me later with a check made out to the Almost Presidents podcast. Um, but anyways, his website emphasizes three things under the Why Doug section, which I was able to find despite the difficult to navigate website. And those things are energy, economy, and national security. Each of these has a short paragraph under it explaining Doug's perspective on the particular issue. But I'm not going to go into any of them specifically because, to be honest, each paragraph says almost nothing of substance. They're basically just empty platitudes that kind of sound good. You can feel free to look into it yourself, but we're just going to kind of skip it. So moving on then, another guy who jumped into the race is Francis Suarez, who is the current mayor of Miami and the son of former Miami mayor Xavier Suarez. Now, the senior Suarez was removed from office in 1998 by a Florida judge who ruled that his mayoral election was fraudulent. And it seems like Suarez the Younger has unfortunately taken after his father in more ways than one. In 2013, Francis Suarez had to drop out of a race because his staffer had come under investigation after they had been caught making absentee ballot requests. Suarez claimed it was within his campaign's rights to do this, but he still dropped out of the race. And more recently, just last month, Suarez was accused of taking $170,000 from a local developer that later landed a $70 million development deal. He is currently under investigation for this by the Miami-Dade County Attorney General's office. Additionally, it's worth noting that Suarez has massive support within Miami. He's won his elections in 2017 and 2021 by over 80% of the vote. So he's massively, massively popular within Miami. Who knows if that will translate to broader appeal, but he is popular within his city. And lastly, it should be noted that Miami is where Trump appeared for the recent charges in the ongoing classified documents indictment. And that means that as the mayor, Suarez was responsible for organizing some of the security for that. Now, how this is going to be viewed by Trump supporters is yet to be seen, but this is the type of thing that seems to get them angry, so we'll see, and they are a huge base of support in the Republican Party. So we'll see how this affects Suarez's campaign. Moving on, former Texas Representative Will Hurd has also thrown his hat in the ring. Now, you might be thinking, who the hell is Will Hurd? And if that's you, trust me, you are not alone. So let's explain. Will Hurd was, for a time, the only black Republican in the House of Representatives, and during that time he oversaw the largest stretch of the U.S.-Mexico border of any district in the country. He was a critic of Trump's border wall policy and has been seen as a moderate ever since. Hurd decided not to run for re-election in 2020, saying that he wanted to serve the country in other ways, and apparently this is how he plans to do that. 
Much like with Doug Burgum, Hurd's campaign website is very brief on all of the issues, so I'm not really going to dig into it too much. But to give you a sense of what this looks like, this is what Hurd had to say about education. And I'm quoting from his website here. We have income inequality because we have education inequality. We have to prepare our kids for jobs that don't exist today. And that is literally all it said. So yeah, not exactly a detailed policy proposal, which is why I'm just kind of skipping over a lot of these guys' websites because they just don't contain a lot of information. All right. And lastly, the person you've all been waiting for, I'm sure we have Chris Christie. And I bet that's a name that you didn't think you were going to hear again. But yes, the former New Jersey governor and 2016 presidential candidate is back and he has decided to throw his hat in the presidential race. Now, unlike other candidates, Christie seems to be deliberately running a losing battle. He appears to be entering the race for the sole purpose of attacking Donald Trump on the debate stage. He is soliciting donations to ensure that he lands on the debate stage so that he can try to own Trump in various ways during these debates. Now, we're still not really sure if Trump is going to show up to the debates, so we'll see how this works out. But anyways, uh, you know, the kamikaze strategy is, to my knowledge, an untested one in presidential politics. So we'll definitely be looking out for this campaign to see what happens because it's certainly an interesting development. All right, so now that we covered all of the presidential candidates that are in the race as of yet, uh, we'll just take a look at the polling in the Republican primary so far. So looking at one of the most recent polls, this is an Emerson poll. We have Trump at 59%, DeSantis at 21%, Pence at 6%, Haley at 4%, Scott, Christie, and Ramaswamy all tied at 2%, and then Hutchinson and Burgum down at 1%. So I'm not really sure if all that money is panning out for you, Doug Burgum, but, you know, go off, man. And next, another recent poll is from Yahoo News, and this put Trump at 48%, DeSantis at 24%, Pence at 5%, Scott at 4%, Christie at 3%, Haley and Ramaswamy at 2%, and Larry Elder himself at 1%. Now, I just want to make a broader note here. It is worth pointing out that since about March, when Trump's first set of indictments came out, DeSantis' support has been steadily declining while Trump's has been gaining, suggesting that voters are starting to sour on the Florida governor, or at the very least, they're losing enthusiasm in him. And this is backed up by both Real Clear Politics and 538, which aggregate polling. Okay, now we are going to switch to the Democrats and talk about them very briefly. But just because there's not a lot of news here, I wanted to look at a key independent who has just jumped in the race who might be important come election time. And that is going to be Cornell West, the leftist intellectual who is famous for his book Race Matters and for his appearance in The Matrix Reloaded. He declared his campaign for the presidency on comedian Russell Brand's podcast just this past month. Cornell West initially said that he would run with the People's Party, but he then switched to the Green Party. West's campaign would focus on universal health care, public housing, environmental justice, and raising the minimum wage. Now, you might be wondering, why am I talking about this? Obviously, I haven't talked about other independent candidates who I don't feel are super relevant. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about the great Vermin Supreme. I haven't talked about the Tiger King himself, who, yes, is running for president. So why am I talking about Cornell West? Well, a lot of people are worried that West's campaign could serve as a spoiler and throw the election to Donald Trump, since West is a progressive who might win over some of Biden's support from the far left. West appears to be getting help from other Green Party spoiler candidate Jill Stein on his campaign, which kind of reinforces this idea. And then so far, Representative Ro Kahana has expressed a degree of sympathy, although not outright support, for West's campaign. And he did ultimately note that part of the reason he did support this campaign is because he thought it was going to help Joe Biden's campaign not hurt it. So it seems like if he feels like West is going to hurt Joe Biden's campaign, he might flip on that. So, you know, more on that later, I guess. All right, with the Republicans and one you know, important independent candidate out of the way, 
I'll just talk very briefly about the polling on the Democratic side because, you know, that's really all that's going on there. There aren't any new candidates in the race. So the Emerson poll that we talked about earlier showed Biden having 73% support among Democrats, Kennedy with 15%, and Williamson with 3%. Yahoo News showed Biden with 67%, Kennedy with 8%, and Williamson with 4%. So that's all, folks. Um, That is your updated state of the field for 2024. And we'll be moving on to interviewing our guest, Brian Eskow, in just a minute. All right. So we want to start by welcoming Brian Eskow on the podcast. He hosts his own podcast called Searching for Political Identity with Brian Eskow. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Before we start, did you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and what you do? Yeah, thanks so much. It is a pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, My podcast, Searching for Political Identity, was born about two years ago when I was in law school at University of San Diego. And I had always been interested in politics, um, thought about maybe starting a blog, realized that was far too much work. Um, And once I realized that a podcast made theoretical sense, I just decided to do it. And it was born from being in law school, of course, with the tumultuous political events unfolding and all of that. It just seemed natural to do that. And so just talking to people every week, trying to gain perspective and figure out, do I want to double down on my democratic upbringing? Because this is really a lot about my upbringing and my relationship with my father and how we view politics and the family dynamics. And do I want to mature? Am I, is my maturation to double down on that or to veer away from it? That's kind of the theme. Very cool. That, that's kind of interesting. Cause I mean, we, we come from a little bit of an opposite perspective where, you know, we grew up pretty like we grew up in a Catholic kind of conservative family. And now we lean a little bit more towards the progressive side of things. So, you know, it's interesting. And I also like the idea of, of exploring how politics relates to like your family background and your upbringing and all of these psychological elements that sometimes people don't like to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think so many Americans, whether they like to admit it or not, are searching for that political identity as well, right along with you. Um, but we are here to talk about Ron DeSantis, as well as just all things related to the GOP and the 2024 election, of course. So we want to start with our most important question. We like to front load the podcast with just the most important stuff first. So our question for you is, what is your favorite nickname that's been given to Ron DeSantis? Oh, well, Meatball Ron sticks out. Okay. There it is. It's so demeaning. <laughs> it's, um, and none of the other ones are coming to mind. So I'll go with that one. And uh, yeah, that's That's been a favorite around here. Yeah, Yeah. I think DeSanctimonious was a lot for some people. I think it got shortened to DeSanctus, which put some people on the DeSanctus boat. I'm I'm, I'm leaning more towards Meatball Ron with you as well. Yeah. 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 And Meatball Ron is just so classic Trump. It's just, you know, DeSanctimonious. It sounds like that was come up by come up with by somebody on his staff or something. Whereas Meatball (laughs) Ron is just like he looks like a meatball. So I'm going to call him Meatball Ron. Yeah, it's too good. DeSanctimonious is is also classic. I was going to agree with you and say it doesn't sound as classic Trump, but it's it's funny. It's funny. But Meatball Ron, you can't, you can't beat it. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. All right. So jumping into things a little bit, um, why don't you just give us your thoughts on kind of this 2024 presidential race as it's currently going overall? And then if you want to, you can kind of dig in specifically on like what your opinions are on DeSantis and his campaign or wherever you want to take that. Yeah, no, it's- I like 
how you guys are focusing, you know, they say in general, right, you should, the, the more focused you are, the better. And by by asking me to focus on Ron DeSantis, it, it does allow you to, because he is a microcosm, I think, for a lot of the debate we're having in America. So where to begin with him? First of all, well, I did write some notes. Okay. You guys spoke in your recent episode, one of your recent episodes about the confidence factor and the charm factor, and everyone is saying it. The more you see him, the less you like. And it's almost sad. Um, it's like, man, the guy's really getting destroyed for having a like a bad personality. So it, it, it almost makes him pitiful. But uh, there's not a whole lot to attach, uh, latch onto in terms of likability. Um, so despite the fact that he's smart, and he is smart, and you could say that he's effective if you're a fan of his, and a lot of people in Florida are fans of his. So mm-hmm. I think you have us, and I, Larry Hogan said it well yesterday, smart guy, but dropping like a rock. Now, I don't know what the latest polls are saying, but so there's something about him that is unlikable. It's not necessarily low energy, but there is an element of that too. And you see him with his jeans, with his jacket. It's just, he just, and when his wife speaks, he looks like he wants to rip her head off. <laughs> um so i don't know he he could bounce back but but personality wise um so that's a really interesting window into politics i think because again you have an intelligent guy you have a guy who served his country admirably but De- debatable but yeah yeah right well at least he's got that that storyline going that narrative right yeah yeah, yeah. But, and i will say that I didn't have a problem with the quote unquote don't say gay belt. I just I really didn't. Um I think it was reasonable. And he so he's he's injected himself into this culture war debate and now he's just trying to make himself more than that. And I don't know if he's succeeding. Despite his you know, he's attacking uh the administrative state, he's doing everything right. But with Trump looming, I think that might be the difference too, with Trump looming as this larger than life character. Right. And that's what we were struggling with. You know, he got the six week abortion ban passed, you know, that was something that nobody could really seem to do. He got it done in his state. He was involved with Greg Abbott in the, depending on how you view it, we, we definitely view it here as just pretty despicable but either way busing immigrants to martha's vineyard sending them to a blue state he seems like i agree he's checking those right boxes with the right but yeah i think it is and a combination of trump looming his personality um i was kind of just perusing through his campaign website and there's always a section right where it's like meet the candidate so meet ron DeSantis, and you'd read a little bit about him kind of always makes the candidate seem like a regular joe like you or i but then right beneath it there's meet Casey DeSantis. So it does almost seem like he is trying to use his wife and his kids as a saving grace to kind of give him a little bit of a boost as it comes to like personality and things like that. Cause I think his wife yeah. does have a career in like film and, and documentary making and, and things like that that kind of enable her to yeah. you know, come off very eloquent and stuff she's like good. that. Yeah. Speech. She's a good communicator and it's an interesting dynamic because it's not like he's a bad communicator, but but it highlights his weaknesses. And and maybe maybe he's not as effective as a communicator as you need to be for the big stage. But 
yeah, trying to humanize him. And obviously everyone's going to use whatever they can, including their family to, to, you know, sell a, a good picture. But um, something doesn't feel right at all. It doesn't feel authentic. It feels especially inauthentic, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, because when we talked to America, the conversation, which was the last group of guests we had on, they brought up what, what you were talking about earlier, the confidence factor, or they called it the Riz factor. I actually think this is super brilliant. And I've been l- looking at previous elections through this lens. And I really think it's actually super predictive is like just... Is it, I think it's the classic, like, is it the guy that you're going to have a beer with? And if it's not, then maybe we throw him out. Like whoever you're most likely to have a beer with is who you've, is who wins the election. Yeah. And yeah, I think that, uh, I agree with what you're saying that it's kind of a tragic thing. I don't necessarily, I actually don't necessarily like it, but it does seem like he lacks the risk factor. I don't like that our elections depend on that, yeah. but it kind of seems like they do. And yeah. it kind of seems like and, he and, lacks and it. Trump not drinking, but you could see yourself clubbing with Trump. Not that I go clubbing. Right. But that was it. Like you could see yeah, yourself like, partying yeah. with the guy. Yeah, with the, anyone. Spe- the specifics don't matter. It's more like, do yeah. you would you hang out with him? Right. That's really more the specifics, or yeah. more important than the specifics. I guess you it know? speaks to likability. Yeah, and then the other thing I was saying, listen to Ryan, you talk about some of these policies that DeSantis has done well, and something I've heard a few people talk about too is, I think because a lot of people per- perceive the Republicans as far right these days a lot of these candidates think what they need to do is take all of their policies and run to the right. But this is something that some people did in 2016 is they would argue, well, no, Trump's not a real conservative. I'm a real conservative. So you should vote for me because I'm a real conservative. And I think the problem is I actually don't know if Republicans are really moving to the right in certain ways. I think in some ways they are, but in other ways, like when it comes to government spending, right? Republicans want someone who's going to ensure that their social security check is pretty large, that their Medicare is covered, all of these things. And it's no longer actually important to be the guy who is in line with conservative principles. Fiscally, at least. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he's leaned in with the culture wars. And I don't know if you caught Paul Ryan. I don't watch any media, but I uh, these days, these days just because I'm kind of studying for the bar exam, but I did see Paul Ryan on Fox and he's got gravitas. First of all, he's, he's, he's likable. Talk about a guy. He's got it. He's got something going on. He's got Riz. It was interesting to see Paul Ryan kind of drop out of the political sphere. It seemed like he had a promising career ahead of him. He's got to be back. You think he'll be back? Well, I I do. If you had to guess, I mean, he certainly could, it seems like, but he was asked about the culture war stuff and, he just said it very well. He said, it's great primary politics. Now, I don't know if I agree with him. He said, look, I'm, I don't want to engage on that stuff. It's great. I'll give it to you. It's great primary politics. So DeSantis engaged with it all the way. And so the question is, is it a real threat? Is it something worth engaging on? Or is it just red meat? DeSantis made the decision early on that it was a real worthwhile topic. And yeah. So he's leaned into that. Fiscally, it almost yes, I agree. It almost doesn't matter anymore. But it's it's the culture war stuff, and maybe we're getting tired of it. Well, I think the culture war stuff. One of the problems you run into is Trump is just the better culture warrior, and there's no two ways about that. And exactly. yes, DeSantis maybe doubled down on policies really hard, but Trump is kind of the spiritual essence of that culture war politics. And so there's just no way 
it's like competing with Jesus to be the best Christian. It's you can't do it. Right. And Trump also has that aspect of him where he's somehow convinced voters that he is the only thing that's standing in your way of the weaponized justice system coming after you, which I mean, I don't know if Brian, if you have any classified documents under your chair, but like, I, I don't share that fear that Trump has, you know, injected into people, but he has done it successfully. So I think that there's also that he's, he's mm-hmm. their guardian angel. If we want to, again, harken back to, mm-hmm. you know, Christian uh, metaphors Absolutely. there. If I was a Republican, if I was Ron DeSantis, now I know he, before he really announced, wasn't it leaking? And of course this is natural, but it was like, I don't think Trump can win. Like he really didn't. So based on that, but I think it was very dangerous for him to politically dangerous for him to break from Trump and, and decide to run against him unless he truly believed unless he was going the Chris Christie route and Chris Christie is a whole nother bag of worms. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Just a human uh, cudgel. If, if he even makes it on the primary stages, but because he, he knows he's not going to win, but he, he's just there he to attack gets it. He gets it. You can't defeat Trump unless you're going head on. That's the only way you stand a chance. Otherwise, you better get in the boat and paddle unless you really yeah, believe that he's a hardcore criminal. And I don't know where DeSantis falls on that. But. Yeah, that's what we've kind of been saying throughout this whole thing is you can't play this game where you're like, oh, well, I like Trump. He's really great. He's really cool. I love him. But I just don't think he's right for the moment. That just doesn't work because you're yeah. half shilling for Trump and then half advocating for yourself. You have to put forward a case for why you should be the nominee and mm-hmm. Trump should not. And right. I think that's where a lot of these guys aren't willing to do that. Mm-hmm. But how do you shake loose all these people who are so firmly entrenched behind Trump when you look at the polls, like the people that just are not dropping off? How do you bring them over to you by attacking Trump? It's it's so difficult. It really yeah. is like, uh, right. I don't even like a game of 4D chess, right? I mean, yeah. you want to get his voters, but you're not going to get it by going after Trump. So we, I mean, we've read some articles that were kind of interesting about some of the candidates maybe picking at different policies throughout the Trump administration. So you're not directly attacking him. You're attacking a crime bill that was under his administration. I don't even think that's a necessarily a pathway, but it's it's an effort. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine trying to navigate those political waters, you know? It's I, I I'd have to think about it for a long time, and I might have, I might say, guys, let's hang it up and go into private business for a couple of years until this guy dies. Because I also think there's a perfectly reasonable pathway for DeSantis in 2028, and I think a lot of Republicans have agreed on that. Let Donald Trump serve his second term. Uh, if he if he chooses to you know peacefully give up power, then that would be a pathway for DeSantis in 2028. And I think a lot of Republicans are, are fine with that, but DeSantis is looking to run. So I don't know if that could potentially destroy his chances in 2028 if the, you know, the action between him and Trump gets too nasty. Well, when it, when it became clear that like, okay, like this is really going down, he's running, like everyone was saying, this is going to be, look, it's always fascinating to, to watch a presidential debate. That's why you guys have a podcast about it. And we all love presidential politics. And then he had the Trump factor, but to see these guys go at it in a primary was always going to be fascinating. And what is going to come out of it? Who knows? I mean. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think the other thing that, because, you know, Ryan, you were saying that, you know, Republicans want DeSantis. They just want him in 2028, not 2024. And I think one of the 
the difficult things about that is there are tons and tons of stories throughout presidential political history of guys who missed their shot, who they were a big name. Chris Christie is one, I think a lot of people say in like 2012, he should have thrown his hat in the ring because he was this popular governor who had won in a blue state, but he didn't do it. And he waited until 2016. And by that point, he was mired in scandal. He was not a household name anymore. He wasn't the big man on campus. And he was essentially struggling to stay above water in the the debates and stuff. So the other alternative is that, you know, maybe he waits till 2028 and then people have forgotten about DeSantis, which is possible, too. True. Yeah. If you're a politician, I mean, it's 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 really interesting. Um, What is your main motivator? And let's assume that the main motivator ultimately really is love of country and wanting to serve and thinking that Trump can't do it. He just can't. He's not going to be able to. So I really am the next best thing. Let me do it. Um, if that's the case, then it really is an emotionally fascinating ride to watch between these two. I mean, I didn't. It's like there's, it's like Shakespearean. Totally. True. Yeah. So so maybe if we want now, we can kind of jump into some of the news stories that have happened since we last covered DeSantis. Um, so this is going to be kind of old news, Brian, but this is we've kind of not caught up on this in, in, a, in a minute. So we just wanted to hit some of the important highlights. So just, I guess, in general, um, what were your thoughts on DeSantis's announcement? It was obviously a little bit different than usual. He made his announcement on a Twitter space um, and there were obviously I think everybody's heard at this point there were some complications, we'll say, and it wound up having some issues and and being a bit of a scandal. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on the the announcement on Twitter Spaces. And can I tack onto that question too, Brian? What do you think about the media's response and how much election announcements matter? Well, I tuned in and I had to bail because I was like, okay, like I was going to give you 10, 15 minutes, Ron DeSantis. I'm very busy. I'm studying for the bar exam. I'm freaking out. I, I wanted to hear what you had to say, and it was a failure. And so, oh, wow! So you actually went on because I didn't watch it live. I tried to, and then yeah. and then now all I've seen, I tuned back in, and I very briefly heard him speaking for about ten seconds, and I thought he sounded good. I thought he sounded really good, but all I have is an image of a failed uh, speech, and then that skit. Did you see that that Trump posted, and that's been going around the fake? space yeah i mean i love that (laughs) so totally uh, hilarious so that's my feeling on the speech i think they are important because in the political world it's all about feel right and you know this is a that's a big moment and it was a total botch and it did not help him i think it it impacted uh his campaign it didn't even feel like it was about him it almost felt like he was a guest on Elon and David Sachs's podcast. Like that's what it felt like. Cause it, early on he reads for just pretty much from a speech and it's just all that stuff that you're used to hearing from him, right? Education, not indoctrination, finding different ways to uh, challenge the Oxford English dictionary by making woke I- into different words, just that mad lib stuff that he does. And it wasn't really until a lot later on and a lot of technological hiccups later that he actually started speaking from the cuff and, uh, like, I mean, like you said, I mean, you were trying to listen to it. I don't think a lot of people were there for that. And from the media, I mean, I've heard like tons of things like this is disastrous because this is supposed to be your day. 
-hmm. Nobody is challenging you. There's nobody giving you bad headlines. This is just your announcement. It's supposed to be big. Um, And it was also, I found kind of a note of irony to it that the guy who was all for opening up schools when COVID was going on did his announcement online through basically a Zoom call. Mm. I thought that was kind of ironic, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's that's funny. Yeah, I agree with all that. It was a total missed opportunity. And, but I think uh, the people who I think the people who were kind of ranting though about like, oh, you know, what is he going to do now for for campaign footage for his campaign ads? He's not going to have that. Yeah, he will. He's going to be campaigning. <laughs> He'll get it right. there. Like I, I thought that was a little bit much. Yeah, it's not. It's not this. It's not the biggest deal in the world. But it was just another little data point for you to question if he's got it. Yeah. Yeah. That that's kind of my thinking too. Is like. Ultimately, it's a one moment thing. It could be could mean nothing. Right. But the problem is it contributes to a larger narrative that he's not viable as a candidate. And because of that narrative, I think it is. Yeah, it's a pretty major misstep. And like Larry Hogan said in this article that I read that just came out yesterday, just his comment was, I thought it was a great political take on DeSantis. And it was, yeah, he's dropped like a rock, you know, (laughs) and um but campaigns, and you guys would know this with all the research you're doing with campaigns, I guess they can turn around. Turnarounds happen, and, and, and nobody's writing off Ron DeSantis. But, but yes, didn't help. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that there's tons of examples. Right now, we're talking about uh, Samuel Tilden in our current like series. And that's an example. That election, specifically Rutherford B. Hayes, is an example of a candidate who kind of comes out of nowhere. Now... It's different in the modern era where you have modern polling techniques and you have a better sense of where different candidates stand. But the principle is still the same. There are plenty of examples of candidates kind of coming out of nowhere. So, yeah, I wouldn't count. I would count almost no one out. There are a few people I would probably say are on, are very, very unlikely. But, you know, who knows what could happen in the next year that could change this whole thing? Absolutely. One one other thing that maybe we could get your thoughts on, like just in general with the idea of doing your announcement on Twitter spaces. I heard a lot of mixed opinions about this because on the one hand, you can pull a lot more people. But then on the flip side, DeSantis was fielding questions from kind of terminally online people who were more interested in like Bitcoin than they were about bread and butter kind of issues. Mm. And do, do you think that it's a good idea? Do you think it's a bad idea to do your do your launch in this way? I thought it was an interesting idea. I respected the fact that he was doing something that seemed like it wouldn't make sense for him. So I respected like the 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 uh, attempt. In hindsight, clearly, I would have you know told him not to do it. I think he missed an opportunity, as we said. But I think it's cool. I mean, I would do it. I don't, but I wouldn't have done it if I were him. Not no. It did, I don't think it made sense for him. Uh, again, not a huge issue, but yes, a misstep. Um. And it's funny, Tucker Carlson, I don't know how many millions and millions of views he's getting, but like he's he's gone, right? From the from the as big as he is, well, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if he's really gone, but since being off Fox, isn't he kind of yesterday's news? So there's something still to that platform, the cable news. I'm not an, I'm not an expert in media, but it's still it's still got something to it. It it seems Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. Um, So kind of moving on here, another thing that we were kind of interested in in maybe getting your take on 
is, you know, lately in the news, not to pivot to an entirely different candidate, but lately in the news, there's been a lot of issues going on with a certain member of the Trump family. I'm sure you've heard lots of scandals, lots of stuff, irregardless of what your you know thoughts might be on that specifically. What is your opinion on how this affects DeSantis? Like, can DeSantis beat Trump if he has to essentially run defense for Trump during his scandals? And maybe should he be running defense? Maybe he shouldn't. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, educate me. Maybe I've been buried in my law books too much, but was it Trump or Biden's family member that's been in trouble lately? Fair point. I mean, that's true. Who, who, but Seriously, but, uh, I'm blanking on who besides Trump himself. Uh, who, who? Oh, sorry. Sorry. I, I meant literally Trump. Okay, gotcha. Okay, sorry, yeah. Sorry, my no bad. worries. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I yeah, no, tried okay. to do that in a roundabout way. My okay, bad. okay. So the question is, what do I think about DeSantis having to run cover for Trump during this campaign, and whether he even should? Yeah, because again, it, like the factor is, you don't want to lose those Trump voters either. I think and you always that, want to appear why, like the alpha. Yeah, right? I think. I think that's why. I would have told the, the guy, look, you have two options. Run as Trump's best BFF and just adore him and protect him and position yourself to not even necessarily run, but to be there when he goes down. That, that, be his best friend and, and be ready to receive his uh, goodwill when the time comes or Chris Christie it. I mean, those are the two options. And now he's chosen the middle path and what he, how you navigate that. I think it's, that's what's suffocating him. I think is he doesn't have a clear line and, um, what is he going to do now? Is he going to protect Trump or is he going to call him out at this point? You have to, you have to call him out, but I don't know. I think he's in a real bind. Yeah, because I was trying to keep up with all the different, you know, federal, local, like all the different indictments and things like and potential indictments facing Trump. And from a legal standpoint, he is not really going to be seriously tried or sentenced or any of this, at least from my understanding, until after the election. So it's not even like there's that perhaps path that like you're just hoping that he'll go away that way. Yeah, I mean, he'll he's still going to be on the chessboard. Yeah, he's going to be on the chessboard, and Joe Biden will be on the other side. And, man, look, I voted for Joe Biden, and I bring that up because I do think that a lot of people voted for Joe Biden. I don't think they would have under any other circumstances but the ones we found ourselves in. But that's what happened. It's possible. Trump certainly could have won again, but with the way he's behaved, it, it's all up for debate. So so what the hell is going to happen? Who knows? It's crazy. We're in uncharted times. But you have Joe Biden on one side, presumably. A lot of people don't think he's going to make it. So the, the, the context matters. Joe Biden versus an indicted Donald Trump. And then you have Ron DeSantis. I, I don't know. Uh, and I'm curious, too, to see what happens with the conservative side. Also for the fate of these allegations and these indictments against Donald Trump. Because the Republican frontrunner will probably... All right, let's say we're in a universe where DeSantis wins, Pence wins, Nikki... 
whoever, it doesn't really matter. They're in a position where they'll probably be expected to, you know, absolve Trump of all guilt and pardon him on their first day in office. Mm-hmm. Or Trump could, I believe this is possible, right? Trump can also pardon himself. Probably so there's could. also that factor too, that adds another element of excitement to this election cycle is, is Trump going to go down for his crimes or is he going to be just absolved of all of them? Mm-hmm. Because right. he either wins or, you know, less likely, of course, right. one of the other Republican candidates wins. Well, you know, and I appreciate you just jogged kind of where I was going and I appreciate that. It's all, you know, where, where are the independents going to go this time? In the last election, independent people like myself, even though I've only ever voted Democrat, we were like, you know what? This is a scary time. Joe Biden is presenting really well. I'm just going to go with Joe Biden because whatever. Trump never spoke to me. But now it's all it's all different. And and the independence could Trump can Trump get the independence? See, I don't know that he can. That's the thing. So are we destined for Biden's reelection? In which case, Trump may go down. And so can anything? You know, it's, it's so interesting. It really who, is because who, who is Trump's best chance? Is it DeSantis? Right. I mean, as of right now, I suppose it is. But even if you look at the left, you're talking about Joe Biden too. We. I don't know which side has more of a potential for somebody to ruin the election for their own party. I mean, if we think about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he's polling in it somewhere, I think, in the 20s, mid-20s last time we checked, uh, which is pretty terrifying um, if you you know believe that vaccines work and you should get your kids vaccinated so that they don't get the freaking measles. And the only other spoiler I could think of on the Republican side would be Trump himself if he doesn't win the Republican nomination. The, the possibility of him running third party. But he has no incentive to do that if he wants a Republican to win, right? If he wants to but get he, pardoned. But, but he wants to win. I don't think he wants a Republican to win. I think he wants to win. Although although you bring up that issue of being pardoned, that's interesting yeah. too. Yeah. That's interesting too. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Yeah. It's another layer. It's another layer that just makes us like... I mean, I always imagine him just fleeing the country. Ultimately, yeah. if it comes down to it, like right. if there's no way that he can get out of it, he'll just mm, flee the that's country. That's probably you're right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's a good point. He'll be fine. I, mean, that's I guess we should lose road, sleep but... over it. Shouldn't lose yeah. sleep over it. Amazing. All right, so maybe at this point we can kind of dig into DeSantis on some of the issues. So one of the things we were kind of looking for, or looking at rather, is DeSantis's kind of ongoing war with Disney. And, you know, maybe you can kind of just give your thoughts on this, but um, how how does this play for Republicans in general? What is What are your overall thoughts maybe on it? Like, should he be going to war with Disney? Does it make sense to? Does Disney deserve it, et cetera? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I did not have a problem, as I said, with the, with the quote, don't say gay bill. And so and when, why, why is that, by the way, just yeah, to um, go back to that? Because I don't have a huge problem with saying that kids through K through third grade should be receiving, should not be receiving instruction on sexual uh, identity or gender identity. Um, I, I, that was fine with me. It was just fine with me. And the, then, it, it was just so slippery, though. Not to, I apologize for yeah, cutting no. you off. Like the language of it was so slippery. Yeah, the though. latter like, part. That, that Which, was kind of a big issue. Like it seemed like just so vague, like you, you couldn't be sure if it was about the stuff that perhaps people are fearing 
or if it was about perhaps a, a male teacher who's married to a man and has a picture of his husband on his desk and a kid says, who's that? And that teacher potentially getting in trouble for it. Like I thought yeah. the language was, was yeah. so vague and I mean, I have a, plenty of other issues with it and I'm, I'm happy to disagree with you. Yeah. On that. So but yeah, I just that it was very it, poorly written. What could it, well, depending on what you, how you feel, right. And what your goals might be, but instruction, what does it mean to instruct? So the, written in a way that a lot of litigation could be had. You could see how a lot of litigation on every word, what does it mean to instruct? Um, if you know, And so you could see there being room for having a picture of your family, whether it's a homosexual or heterosexual relationship on your desk without being guilty of in, or accused of instructing. But, I think a lot of teachers in Florida that were very scared of, of, of just that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Maybe they should look and and does the state have a right to to do that and and the collateral being I got to turn my picture around my husband or my wife you know I gotta I gotta hide that is that the worst thing in the world is that a crime is that a wrong I I, I don't know I don't know when you weigh it I felt like it was it was okay well I think yeah I. I... Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I lean kind of the other way, I think, because I wonder, would we say that if it were like an interracial couple? Right. Would we say that it's all right for us to make a teacher who's married to a black woman, for example, put their picture down on their desk so the kids can't see because it might upset some of the parents? I don't like that outcome personally. Um, it just but, seemed like know, a lot of it was nor do not, I. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seemed like a lot of it was based more on like. You know, vindictiveness. Let's just, let's just not talk about it at all. Um, let's not have it appear in any books. Let's not have it appear in any movies. And that's just not reflecting the reality of the world. Well, have you, you read know, I, I mean, Am Jazz? Have you ever seen that one? The I was in Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Nobles, a couple of weeks ago, randomly. <laughs> it's not like I spend much time in there. And I saw and and I read I Am Jazz because you know it's one of these controversial books. And I was like, you know. I don't know if that should be in children's library in libraries and public schools. It's just I, I I don't know. But it was close enough for me to say, "Hey, let's focus on school is for the primary education and you put a lot of trust in school teachers. And they have a lot of discretion and a lot of time with your kids and uh to say that Instruction should not be given on controversial topics, topics that are controversial among adults, amongst adults. Um, I didn't think it I was. Would, I would just say it. one of my problems with it was like, is the depiction of a transgender individual or a gay individual or non-binary, they're almost treating that as an inherently sexual act. Like you might as well be talking to kids about sex when mm -hmm. you're not. You're just you're just depicting that individual in a work of fiction, in a work of nonfiction. And I just also saw the danger for that to expand all the way up K through 12. And I mean, I think we're already seeing DeSantis do it on college campuses um, as well. I mean, definitely when it comes to things like race with the AP, I believe it's African-American studies course. Or was that high school? But either yeah, way, it's just high like, school. yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to like fall into a slippery slope fallacy here 
but it just seems like it's very fraught with potential danger in addition to the dangers that are already there. Well, I definitely agree with you that I think it's totally wrong to equate LGBTQ plus identity with sexuality or sex, you know, sexual, sexually charged behavior. Um, but it is not the same issue to me as race. It is an issue that is sensitive. And um, I thought the state was within its rights. I thought it was reasonable for what it did. Um, though controversial. Expanding it to K through 12. Yeah. I, does the state have a right to mandate that only X, Y, Z topics, math, science, and reading will be focused on? I don't know. It's a whole ball of wax. But what was the thing about the high school? What was the AP? Um, so, yeah, it, it was AP African-American studies, I believe, that DeSantis I don't remember the specifics of how it was done, but essentially blocked from being taught in high school. So it's not taught in high school in in Florida, I guess, anymore. I'm sure the essence of it, and I, I'm sure it was something that, I'm sure there was an element of critical race theory in that stu- in that in that program, which is to say that it wasn't just history; it was history plus a vision for the future, an affirmative policy. And so we don't have to get into all of that, but well, maybe just for a second. And that's where it all started for Ron DeSantis, I think, right? Is the idea that, look, we don't have a bad country. We have a good country. It was imperfect, but what we have is a good system and we don't need to condemn it. And uh, the bottom line is critical race theory. And well, let me change subjects back to the kids. It's not that LGBTQ people are sexually charged inherently. I don't believe that, but they are going after the kids and that's what anyone would do, right? If you want to really change the next generation and teach, you really do have to teach the children. And so it's very, it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, sensitive battle that's going on with, with these issues. So I, 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 I'm sensitive to that. Yeah. I mean, I guess as a teacher, it's just, it's just nice to, for, your student to be able to, you know, read something and, uh, and see themselves in it, you know? And I think that not permitting that is, is a real missed opportunity, you know, and it Mm. kind of can, can perhaps do a little bit of damage, um, stunting the growth, you know, of that, of that individual. Um, but, uh, we did want to talk about Ron DeSantis and race too, because I don't know if you heard about, did you hear about the, uh, the NAACP issuing this travel, uh, Kevin, what was the language for that again? We have it in our notes. Uh, I believe it was a travel warning. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Me... Travel, travel advisory. I think. It was. Did you there. see this, yeah. these comments that he made today or yesterday? We can tie that into. I don't know if you saw those, but no, I didn't. Yeah, let's tie those in. Well, I mean, I just he said today or yesterday that um, baseball is democratic and meritocratic, and whereas in basketball you have these freaks of nature. Oh yeah, yeah. I read and about this. Um, I forget what the other com- comment was in basketball. Freaks of nature, and in baseball, you know, no matter how you are physically, you can your skill can get you through. So, fascinating comment on multiple levels. One of them is race. Definitely. 
But I think, I th- but I think, I think it was, but I think it's silly. I thought it was really silly to to put out a statement to to advise against people of color from traveling to Florida. I thought, I thought that was stupid. Yeah, I guess I see the foundation for it in the AP African American Studies, the being very anti CRT, and the, uh, what was there was there one other thing um, relating to uh, African American individuals. Um, but no, it, it did. I don't know. I would have to read a lot more about it, but it, it did. I would agree with you seem a little bit uh, too far, a little bit almost performative in a mm. way. Yeah, mm-hmm. my my thing is like I I probably side with the NAACP on all of those things that you listed, Ryan, like the, the AP African-American studies, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I probably side with them on that. But I do think to say that you're going to issue a travel advisory, that's not something that you do because you disagree with how they're forming their education system. That's something you do if you think there's a risk of violence. And that's what I haven't seen evidence for, that there's like a high risk of violence towards black people. Like I haven't seen evidence. There's like a high percentage of like clan activity in Florida or something like that. That's, that's what I think would warrant a travel advisory. And I think if you go around throwing these things out frivolously, I think it reduces your credibility. And I think that's kind of what happened there. I, I kind of agree with what you said, Brian, which is that I think it was a little bit silly to say. A couple of weeks ago, maybe it was even months ago. Do you recall this anti or what is it? This anti Jew pro Goyim defense, whatever, you know, white nationalist uh, thing in Florida. There was a guy with a bullhorn and he was screaming at Jews. Uh, you know, did you see this? You know, don't touch his car. Don't touch his car. Totally harassing these Jews as they're driving away. You have bad genetics. Uh, Jesus. Oh, no, the worst. I'm Jewish and uh, reformed Jew. And and just the most offensive things, the most offensive things. And it really hurt. I was like, damn. And I even said at the time, I was like, you know, Ron DeSantis must condemn this like today. Like this is going viral. I need a statement out of this guy. And I can't remember if he did or not. But but um, it was it was bad. And I never I haven't seen anything like that about black people uh so ideology and how sensitive you are yeah it's it's, yeah to what you said about anti-semitism i think there was something that came out of the florida legislative session that ended early may that pertained specifically to that there was some sort of action very very hard-nosed about making that a hate crime which i mean obviously i think any any reasonable person would think that that's a good thing yeah some of these florida guys some of them are, are but the question is, and I apologize for interrupting, but does that guy represent a majority of the MAGA movement? You know, I never thought so. And I, I don't think I still think so. I don't think so. But there's an element there. I think there's far too many MAGA people out there to say that that's, that's MAGA right there. You know, and I, I don't usually right. rise to the defensive MAGA. Right. But <laughs> I get that. Yeah, no, I sense I that. I don't think they're all a bunch oh. of, you know inflamed anti-Semites. I just think that there are people in that group, including their leader, who will um, not always quickly condemn things like that, that are just so yeah. blatantly horrible. Yeah. I'm um, just thinking about like Charlottesville, right? But yeah. that wasn't- And this to me was ago. 17 times more acute than Charlottesville. We, the Charlottesville thing, I honestly, I thought the media overblew it. I, despite how horrible the one side was with those marchers, I thought the media kind of overblew Trump's comments, to be honest. But that's a whole different topic. Yeah, different topic. Maybe. We'll, yeah. Yeah. Um, another time. 
we'll keep it keep it on DeSantis and maybe yeah. keep that one for another time. Do we, uh, Ryan, do we want to go into any more specifics of DeSantis policies or do we want to move on to our like Florida man and a fake section? Um, I did want to just address what you had said about um, that recent headline with DeSantis kind of equating baseball and basketball. I like how you said that it, it was multi-layered because I felt that way too, because that's one of DeSantis's big things is meritocracy, right? You hear that all the time from him, especially when it comes to what is it? DEI, uh, diversity, yep. mm-hmm. um, equity and inclusion, equity yep. and inclusion. Yeah. Kind of saying that like, we shouldn't just allow for positions based on race. It should be based on uh, meritocracy, you know, what you can bring to the table. And uh, that's another one, of course, where I, I have a lot of issues with that because there's a lot of uh, undertone there that I think is pretty, pretty clear, at least in my eyes. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I almost, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not in the position of a, an African-American man, specifically an African-American man who plays in the NBA, but I, I do think that that comment of calling an, a basketball player a freak of nature, like as a big Orlando Magic fan, I've said things like that, you know, right. like, I, oh my God, like if we could land right. Giannis, he's a freak of nature. Like we, right, wouldn't, right, we would be right. unstoppable. Exactly. But I almost think that if you are a guy like Ron DeSantis who has a target on his back from the left, just based on the virtue of the party he's running for and all the things that he's done in his state that run against the grain of what the left wants to do. Along with the fact that, I mean, there was the AP, you know, African-American studies. There's the way that they teach race in Florida. You know, Rosa Parks was not sent to the back of the bus because she was black. She was sent to the back of the bus and this NAACP travel advisory. I think that would make people more inclined to follow the racist narrative that I don't think is necessarily there. I mean, DeSantis is a guy that loves baseball mm. and was just kind of equating two sports coming one from his area of expertise and then from what he hears about basketball. And to a degree, in, in a very complimentary way, I mean, you do have to be a freak of nature to be good at basketball. You have to be an incredible, almost beyond human athlete, mm. like in the, in the, in the best way in order to be successful at basketball. I mean, these guys are incredible what they do. Okay, you know, I want to say one thing really quick because we talked about this quote briefly, I think, last night. And I, I'll i be honest, I did not read the article at all. I just kind of read a headline and made a judgment about it. Now that I just, I just read the quote, I actually do think this is a little bit of a dumb thing to say. I think what he's essentially saying is that baseball is a thinking man's sport and basketball is not, which I think is nonsense Uh-oh. as a fan of basketball. Um, I think basketball is a very serious sport. Uh, and I think basketball players have to think very quick, have to, you know, have a sharp mind. I don't know if it was necessarily a racist thing to say, but it was definitely uh, disrespectful to the sport of basketball. So I think so. Yeah. You know, I, I don't I think we you know, this will be forgotten t- tomorrow type of thing of course but it's a fascinating it's because remember when he said when he was running against gillum you know we stopped monkeying around so he has danced with these uh with these with these comments that and he's always given himself enough room but um it's interesting because the stance of him like and vivek and really all the republicans including tim i mean all the republicans regardless of color they are taking strong stands against CRT, DEI, and that is to say, hey, we believe in uh, merit, meritocracy in history, not history plus, you know, activism. And, um, you know, that's fair. And I, I te- that's where I tended to agree with 
these guys. And that's what's drawing me to the right. Cause as I went through law school and learned about, I said, you know what? This system's pretty good, man. We had our flaws, believe me, but now it's pretty good. And then in my final year of law school, I got two, uh, I took two electives with amazing professor in CRT and I was baptized in CRT and I found it to be very controversial. And as all this stuff is happening on the national political scene. So I'm like, you know what? I get it. I definitely think you, you can be against DEI and CRT without being racist. Um, so Dan, to, to make those comments on one hand, yeah, they can be totally, they're just friendly sports comments. He's just a sports guy, but he's danced before. So uh, I don't think it'll be a big deal, but it is, it is interesting. And, you know, whether these cultural war issues continue to have play long term and whether he can break out of Trump's shadow, yeah, to be, to be determined. And I'm curious to see if these culture war things don't just turn into a bigger distraction than a upside for him, because he puts out things like, I believe it's the, uh, was the protection of children act, everything that had to do with kids not being able to, or allowed to go and see drag shows and things like that. Mm -hmm. And now you have a restaurant in Orlando that does a lot of drag and they're suing him. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that might be even the first domino in a lot of lawsuits that are just people striking back against this legislation that he's promoting in Florida. And then if this whole vision, right, because he kind of Kevin and I disagree on this a little bit, but he kind of pitches himself as this visionary, right? I'd accomplish all of these things in Florida. Only imagine what I could accomplish in the United States. Well, if all of his culture wars put the state in turmoil because all these people are lashing back at him, which is starting to happen. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if that's going to turn into a big distraction when it comes time for the primaries and all those things where he's really just got to focus in on running for president. Yeah, I'm your war. He's a, he's fighting the battles and that's cool, but it's a double edged sword for him because he's the governor of Florida right now. And he's in, you know, he's doing these things. He's not just talking about it, he's doing it. So how that plays is is to be determined. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And it reminds me of. There was a moment, I, I believe it was in 2018 or 2019, when Amazon decided to pull like a certain part of their headquarters out of New York. Yeah. Um, or they were going to build headquarters in New York and they decided not to. And a bunch of people blamed this on AOC because she had been making a bunch of comments about taxes and stuff like that. And she was Congresswoman from New York. And I think it's interesting because it feels like that's kind of what's happened to DeSantis with Disney is he made a bunch of comments and actions against Disney. And then Mm -hmm. they decided not to, you know, I guess build an addition that would have meant more employees or whatever. And yeah, I wonder not only picking a fight with anybody, you're picking a fight with like one of the biggest employers in your state, (laughs) which is a big deal. Yeah. And I wonder how it plays because with AOC at the very least, that was kind of how she was always framed was being kind of anti big corporations. And so probably for a lot of people in her base, going to war with Amazon is like a huge plus. And if Amazon bites back only for the better, right? Mm -hmm. But DeSantis is a Republican who, and traditionally Republicans want to appeal to the business class. And, you know, we've already seen Chris Christie kind of turn on DeSantis as well, which granted, of course, Chris Christie is going into this kind of like a kamikaze attacking everybody. But regardless, you know, there's a sense amongst Republicans that maybe this tactic is not good for business. And that's, obviously going to be a problem for the traditional Republican base. Another, another you fought big woke, problem yeah. for him. Um, you, when fought, you, you fought woke too hard, bud. That's right. He, he may have, um, he got too deep into the quicksand of woke 
And Disney might be swallowing his political ambitions up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's 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 announced. Hey, I'm my brand is culture over everything, culture war over everything, and uh, there there may be a limit to people's interest in the culture war. It's like okay, fight it, but maybe not. You know, I am continuing to repeat the phrase to be determined, but we shall see. Of course, of course. we shall see. But doesn't seem like an, a position you'd want. He's being folded into a pretzel politically, not a place you really want to be. True. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe we can talk about this one last thing, because earlier you were talking about some of the education policies and some of the stuff around CRT. And I'm interested to hear your take on this, because, you know, it seems like you know a lot about CRT. You've talked about this. Um, and I think sometimes when we talk about how to study history, we talk about it as if it's just sort of listing off a series of facts. And I think, you know, as people who have a history podcast, it's a bit more I think nuance than that. Sometimes in history, what you are doing is unpacking interpretations of history, right? And arguably, I think that's probably the most important way to approach history is to think very critically about the lens you're viewing history through and to also sort of try out other lenses to see if they help you make sense of the world better. Mm -hmm. And I think critical race theory, you can correct me if I'm wrong here because it seems like you know more about CRT than I do. I think it's one of those lenses. I don't think it's necessarily... Uh, accurate 100%, but it's a lens that you can look at history through. And I wonder if something is lost, if we have policies that don't allow us to do that history plus kind of thing where we're looking at history through a lens, right? And, you know, just to, I guess, preface this, I think you could go too far in the other direction, right? Where you're where you're not teaching history class, you're just teaching an ideology class where you're like, let me just pump you full of all the ideas that I believe. And that would obviously be a problem too. But yeah, uh, I w- I'm wondering what your thoughts are. You're on absolutely that. right. And so whose lens? Who gets to decide? That's all it ever comes down to. And does the state get to have, have a lens? And, um, you know, no, the state really shouldn't have a lens. Yes, it has some lens, but it has to be really scrupulously objective and so to question the objectivity of that lens is good is fine but to put your own on it and say this is going to be the lens um is also wrong and so they will say brian cool man like i get it that's fine but what are you going to do about the fact that the reality isn't not objective the reality the past the history which uh, still affects today is not objective. African Americans in this country have been disadvantaged in more ways than you can count, and it's not fair. So you got to do something about it. That's equity. And the other approach is the Ron DeSantis approach. I mean, it's very interesting. I'll, just because you got very, very quickly, I'll give you uh, this. There are, according to the professor that taught me this, there are four ways to interpret. Um, the state of affairs today in politics, uh, civil rights, the state of civil rights, basically relations. Um, traditionalism, which is to say everything is fine now, everything is fair now. We've Since the civil rights legislation was passed, everything's neutral. That's the Ted Cruz, the Rodney Santis, the T- Donald Trump, you know, the meritocracy, Republican view, traditionalist. Then you have reformists who say we still need to tinker around the edges and and make things right. So although we want to have that colorblind society and that colorblind is good as traditionalism. Although we want that, we need to recognize color a little bit to tinker around the edges. Then you have, so you have traditionalism, reformist, critical race theorists who then says, 
nope, you got to undo it all. It's all built on a, a crooked foundation. You got to undo the whole thing and you got to see race to do it. None of this colorblind bullshit. And then you have uh, limited separation, which sounds like a return to segregation, but it isn't. The difference is limited separation and say, hey, black communities are the answer to um, any problems that may exist in the black community. So to the extent that we can fund black institutions and keep them predominantly black, not totally black, but predominantly black, that would be the best thing for the African-American community. Um, You can only really fall into one of those camps, according to this guy. And um, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. But critical race theory is is the idea that we we need to radically transform away from a colorblind system because that is harming non-whites. Colorblind system actively harms non-whites through either microaggressions, the default being white when the default is white. And so that's my point. If Is the default white? Is the default unfair? Because if it is, that's wrong. So that's the tension, you know? Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. That was and a really yeah, interesting breakdown, too, from yeah. your professor, yeah. by the way. Oh, he's That amazing. was fascinating. Yeah, thank, yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing yeah, yeah, yeah. that with us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, I guess my, my thinking was just, I think that there is a maybe a fallacy in the approach that some of DeSantis's supporters have taken to education, and that is like this idea that you can sort of just teach the facts. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you teach CRT specifically. But I think if you have a legislation that blocks uh, in the use of interpretive lenses on history, I think that that can be a problem for teaching history in the best way possible. That was, I guess, my my thinking. Mm-hmm. And I also think that I agree with what you're saying, that you know people shouldn't be made to feel guilty when they're learning about history because it's not, it's not a, like you didn't do anything, you weren't there. But at the same time, I think that studying history needs to be inherently uncomfortable, especially when you're talking about the history of this country, because no matter how good you think things are right now, our history was built on a foundation of human bondage. It, it, it just was, you know, and then a lot of great ideas came out of that. Um, I mean, the expression I always use is I like being able to walk down the street without bullets flying over my head. Right. And just things freaking blowing up. Like, you know, we, do live in a great country, but it's not great for everybody. And a way to think about positive change is to study history as it happened in a way that makes people uncomfortable in as many lenses as possible. And it just seems like what DeSantis is doing is trying to limit that, is trying to limit the discomfort. You know, Just because white people are hearing that white people in the past did bad things doesn't mean you have to get uncomfortable by it. It's just that's that's a part of history. Yeah. And, you know, you hear from Republicans like it was actually the British who ended slavery. You know, like I don't know. Like, I don't know what's real anymore, man. But there may be some truth to that. Like, yes, we were founded on slavery. And so the question is, like, for us as Americans, are we going to. Is is private property corrupted, inherently corrupt from that existence of chattel slavery? Or can we look past it and say, you know what? We've flushed that crap out of our system and money is okay and capitalism is okay and exchange is okay, you know? Or do we want to live in a world where we get away even more from ownership? And, you know, that's the two different visions of freedom. You know, the Republican vision of freedom, the conservative vision of freedom, the progressive vision of freedom. And again, another thing I learned in law school, negative liberty versus positive liberty. Have you guys ever heard those terms 
Negative versus positive liberty, yep. you probably have, right? Yeah. So yeah. should the government- Can you just ha- explain it for our listeners, yeah. though? Negative liberty is what people will say America was founded on, which is the government cannot do X, Y, or Z. The, it prohibits government action, therefore protecting your freedom as a, as a person. Whereas positive liberty will say, no, the government is entitled, you are as a citizen entitled to A, B, or C from the government. And so it's different visions of, of liberty. Negative is the traditional the traditional American one, but we don't have to keep that. But um, yeah, for, I, I suppose I lost my train of thought, but two visions of liberty and uh, yeah, take it from there. <laughs> well, yeah, to, to go back to something you said kind of at the beginning there about does it mean necessarily that because we have this history, private property is as a concept is corrupted or something, right? Right. And, you know, I come from a perspective where, you know, I, I generally would say that I'm pro capitalism, which would mean that you you need private property and stuff. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say, and maybe this puts me in that reformist camp that your professor was talking about, but I wouldn't say that private property as such is like totally corrupted. But I think that mm-hmm. what happens is because there was this historical wrong of slavery and Jim Crow, that those issues get perpetuated into the future. Because as we all know, if you're born rich, you have certain advantages, right? Or if you're born middle class, you have certain advantages. And if an entire underclass of people is born into poverty because of things that we did in the past, there's this problem that's been created, which I think I would describe it as almost like maybe like inertia. Like I think eventually, you know, and we are already seeing this, we'll see people build wealth and that problem will eventually go away. But that will take generations, right? And in the interim, there are people who get harmed by that. And that's where I guess I kind of do see um, maybe what you could call the CRT perspective, where it's like, okay, there is this historical blemish on our history that that continues into the present and like affects people into the present. And I, America's so fucking young too. That's the thing. Yeah. Like you, you go overseas. I mean, I've never, I've never been overseas. I'd love to, but like you have some castle in Ireland. You ask some guy, Hey, you know, when was that put up? I don't fucking know. <laughs> With America, we can yeah, point sure. to everything. Right. I mean, except for all the native Americans that were basically genocided out a lot of that history, of course, accidentally smallpox, um, um, <laughs> among other, th- among other things. Um, uh, but, Nice like look, Brian. Our, our country is so damn young. So that's that's yeah. kind of the thing. It's like you almost can't sweep anything under the rug ever since Plymouth Rock because it really was not that long ago in yeah. the grand scheme of things. And I'm open to like the reparations discussion, like certainly like make a case for reparations. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I'll buy it. And the professor would say that's a, that's the other component of critical race here. The poker game analogy. You know, if you start, if someone starts with five times the poker chips and you, it's, is that fair? Is that a fair game? So we want to play a fair game. Um, it's, it's, it's all very interesting. Uh, the conservatives want strict rules. The progressives want equity and you can understand the allure of each. So it's, it's fertile ground for controversial conversations. It's all very interesting and it's, it's, it's easy to latch onto and caricature. So you can understand why DeSantis latched onto this. Because people feel threatened about, it's easy to threaten people's understanding of their country uh, and their systems. And you could see how people would associate critical race theory with communism. Obviously, you could see that how that could be done. And there is a large Venn diagram overlap, but it's not the same. But you can understand why that fear would be there. So it's all, it's just, um, 
Yeah. Critical race theory, whole ball of wax. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, we, I mean, we definitely just had a pretty far reaching, interesting conversation. Do we want to jump into, you know, the, I guess the fun part, the Florida man and a fake thing or. Well, this whole thing hasn't been a fun part. I'm depressed now. I can't do the Florida man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kevin, did you want to explain the rules and uh, the running record between hosts and guests, which Kevin and I have been keeping? Mm. Yeah. So roughly, you know, the rules are Ryan and I come up with three uh, Florida man headlines. Two of them are real. Like we actually found them on the internet and then one is fake. And then Brian did the same. Um, So we're each going to take turns at basically guessing who's, uh, headline is fake. So we'll read off our headlines. Brian will guess which of our headlines is fake. And then we'll flip and do the opposite. Um, currently the score, we keep score guess versus us. Currently we are not doing well. Mm. Um, I believe we are O and one and one. So we had one tie, mm. one uh, loss and the other yeah, one. Ha- half yeah, baked so. history. No pun intended. They just smoked us. So <laughs> yeah. So, so you're, um, you're you're well positioned right now, Brian. Feeling good we're too. Not exactly I don't think you're gonna great at this. I don't think you're good. Come on, I think Kevin, I'm gonna beat you. This out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll leave it up to you, Brian. Do you want to go first, or do you want us to go first? Uh, you guys go first. Why not? All right. So we'll read ours first. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, Ryan, do you want me to read? Um, I can read them. I guess if you want. Okay. Cool. All right. So our first one: Florida man jumps from hotel balcony dies after parachute fails to open don't you hate it when that happens our second one florida man discovers secret mermaid colony in backyard pool which i don't know if y'all watched that netflix documentary series about the people who think that they're mermaids Mm. but i think a lot of them are in florida um and then the last one florida man chants as police try to arrest him i i couldn't find what he was chanting but he wasn't supposed to have a gun for whatever reason and he had it so they arrested him he started chanting really loud okay uh I hope this is correct. The mermaid one is fake. Yes, you got it. Wow. It. All right. Too too Man, much. I thought I thought I had you with that one. No, 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 no. <laughs> but uh, there's some synergy. I have a I have a one of mine has mermaid in it. Okay. Oh, so, okay. I don't know if that's because I tried ChatGPT and they just kept giving me Florida Man. And oh, alligator. you cheater! So you I guess cheater. that that's all they've. I, I no, I, I didn't do any ChatGPTs because I had to, right. I had to like back out of the chat gpt because it's like all right alligators he's gonna know it's a fake guy they what chat gpt thinks about you man um (laughs) all right you ready okay ready yep first headline florida man arrested while trying to warn space force about battle between aliens and dragons second headline florida man threatens to blow up neighbor during 911 call third headline florida man arrested for firing gun at images of ariel from the Little Mermaid at a McDonald's. Okay, I did. A I good feel like three's got to be true. I mean, yeah. Okay, so I was I was leaning towards one. So one is the Space Force Dragon one, um, and I'm sorry. What was the second one again? Two is Florida Man threatens to blow up neighbor during nine one one call. God, I mean, I feel like he's just trying to get us. With the uh, like the space force <laughs> one is such a juicy that, that that one is such a juicy worm, <laughs> you know. Like, um, true. Shit. Uh, I did it. I know I did a good job. This is hard. Good. You got that law school precision of language going yep. for you. Yeah. Um, yes. Yep. Putting that degree to work. 
sadly. I don't know. Kevin, what do you think? Why don't you go first and then we'll agree on one together? I lean towards one. That's you lean my, towards one? Leaning, yeah. All right. Um, why don't we go two? I feel like he's trying to psych us out. You want to go two? Okay, sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Final so answer? In. Two. Two? Yeah. Okay, you're both wrong. It was three. Three's the fake. Man. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Well played. Pulled it out yeah, too but this early. was hard. I was deep in like page nine of like Florida Man headlines on Google. <laughs> so nice. I came prepared. All right. Wow. Still uh <laughs> still without a W. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We got a long election cycle ahead of us, so hopefully we can redeem ourselves right. at some point. We're going to come back. I'm sure of it. Well, Brian Escott, it was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for the great conversation and your time. Um, Did you want to just plug one last time for our listeners, your podcast? Yes, please. It's Searching for Political Identity, available everywhere. Thank you guys so much. I had a great time. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I am a new fan of your show. So keep up the great work. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. Lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is TheAlmostPresidentsPodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.